Hey, now, welcome to episode numero ocho. Can you believe it? We're at episode number eight of Where Wine Takes You, a Paso wine podcast. Now, thank you so much for being here. My name is Adam Montiel, your host. If you are back, it is great to connect with you and have you back here. If you're checking out the pod for the first time, we gather here to spotlight the people and places that make Paso Robles wine country such a one-of-a-kind and magical place. And magical, I know, it's such a cornball word, and I get it, but I swear, there, there's just something. If you've been here, you know. Now, we were downtown earlier in the week celebrating the downtown City Parks dining experience. This is actually a really cool story. So with restaurants forced to shut down inside business, we had a bunch of community members businesses all like hit the situation room and we're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? So you had generous wineries like Justin and Epic Estate, Booker, Eberly, Dow, and some small business support. We even have a great event company event. Like what are those events? Am I saying that right? Events? What are those? A great event company called All About Events that donated these beautiful wood tables and chairs and organizations like the Main Street Association, Travel Paso, and the Paso Wine Country Alliance all figure out how to have this little like real estate at the downtown city park like an eatery where anybody could for free bring your food from anywhere around downtown, even make reservations like online. It's staffed, kept clean. I mean, it was perfect for these outdoor businesses, and also very illustrative of the kind of people and neighbors folks are here in Paso. I just loved it and wanted to share that with you. Ah, so some housekeeping. So cool to see the podcast grow the way it has been. Please share it with a friend. And if you could, and it means a lot, please rate, review, and subscribe. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of podcasts in this genre, and we have consistently been in the top 200, which is unreal. We actually hit 16. Number 16 we hit one week. So we are definitely moved by the momentum and thankful to all of the guests who make this podcast so special. And of course, you for making time to listen and to hang with me here. Give me that long sound, we'll get by, we pass on down till the job is up. Get out in the trees, it will simplify good company. All right, today we have a special episode as we have our first chef on the show. The theme today is passion for vineyard and the earth with food and wine. Two great guests. I want to jump right in. First, we're going to talk to Jason Haas of Tablas Creek. Jason is fantastic. The wine is fantastic. The story is fantastic. And their leading role in the brand and its patriarch, the late, great Bob Haas, is an undeniable piece of the Paso Robles puzzle and history and the advancement of Paso as a world-class wine region. Jason is a great communicator and has used his talents for writing to connect with fans of Tablas Creek to much success. But it wasn't always that easy. We had set ourselves up with a really difficult challenge that we were making great. We were making blends, which were not yet an accepted part of the American wine world, from grapes that people didn't know and couldn't pronounce in a place they'd never heard of. And we were giving them French names that didn't mean anything to them. <laughs> Other than that, it was uphill, easy. Uphill, uphill. Yeah. Uh, other than that, it was easy. <laughs> but... I realized that when, once I got out here, like we had to tell the story. If we didn't tell the story, we didn't get people into our world. The place that that really came through was when I was talking with Mark Perrin, who's the oldest of the Perrins of my generation, 
Um, and they had started a blog for Femi Peren. And this was like 2004. I mean, wait, very beginning of this. And he's like, oh, it'd be really good for your search engine rankings. Like, I was like, okay, great. I'll start writing a blog. I like how he said that. Well, that blog has become a key means of communication between he and fans of Tablas Creek. Our conversation with Jason just moments away. After our chat with Jason, we're going to talk to our first chef on the show. Le Petit Canaille is a French restaurant that opened less than a year ago, smack dab in the middle of downtown. It's no secret the restaurant biz is tough. And during a global pandemic, when you're open, you're closed, you're open, you're outside, your customers are being told by the governor, put your mask on in between bites. Literally, that happened. It can be stressful, but that hasn't stopped the progress of LPC. That trend of like innovative, fun, you know, uh, high level um, of hospitality. And so for me, you know, it's definitely the kind of trend I want to continue to see in Paso, you know, so, um, so we'll see. And then who knows, you know, maybe they, uh, depending on how things go, we, we, might, we might move on to something else. Ooh, maybe breaking some news here on the old podcast, yeah? That conversation in a bit. Well, for over 30 years, Tablas Creek has been at it and their mission of bringing all the Rhone varieties, and there's more than just Grenache Saran Moved, safely and correctly and done right to bring them here and share those clones with whoever wants them. Their history with Chateau de Bocastel in Chateauneuf de Pop is really remarkable, but an essential piece of this brand's history and thus Paso's history and growth. I joined Jason Haas in his backyard on the south side of Paso. Of course, he's got vines in the backyard. So cool. He greets me with a special library bottle. And if you know anything about Tabas Creek library bottles, they always open up like rock stars. Cheers. Look at this. 06. Seemed like an appropriate moment to do a little looking back as well as looking forward. Yeah, man. I mean, and I, it's still, it takes me back to Hospice Derone a few years back. And I mean, you guys were like the prize of the room on that first day because your library bottles were opening up like they were so bomb. They were just like lightning after lightning. It was so cool. That's going to be fun because I'm just asking you off the air before we jumped on. Are you critical when you have to open a bottle like this? I don't know. I mean, I, the thing is that. Wine as it ages, I mean, every bottle is its own personality. So I'm curious to know how this particular bottle is. And obviously, I want to taste it be like, is it corked? No, not corked. Okay, good. Um, but it's just a data point. It's always fascinating to open older wines because they are all unique after a couple of years. And and what you're doing is you're just sort of checking in with an old friend. Yeah, I like the way you look at it like that. So the podcast is called Where Wine Takes You. It's been fun to play with that, with those four words because it's a little bit different to everybody and it can mean something different to everybody. But this show and this conversation with you, it's really fascinating because Where Wine Takes You, the Paso Robles story, Where Wine Took Paso, it's really fun to talk to a brand where like, you were a major role player in, in the way Paso is right now. It's a fun concept for for a podcast or, I mean, or even for a group of conversations just because... I mean, I mean, wine took me here to Paso, and I, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, it really brought our whole family here. My dad was an importer starting in New York and then in Vermont, where, where I grew up. But this was the place where he could make his kind of Chateauneuf-du-Pape dream happen. So 
I mean, it brought him out here. It brought me out here a decade later. And I've been here 20 years, and I've gotten to see it grow up around us. But uh, it's, it's, it's certainly taken me a lot of interesting places. Um, the very unique story and the uh, relation to the Perrin family, Chateau de Beaucastel, that ended up finding Tablas Creek here in Paso over 30 years ago. Yeah, so my dad was an importer. Um, he made his name importing wines from France. I'm originally Burgundy and Bordeaux. But he decided pretty early on, like in the 1960s, that the future of wine importing was not carving up Burgundy and Bordeaux finer and finer, but instead finding regions who's, who were making great wines and who offered good value. And then he would try to find a producer in each of those regions whose wine he could use to introduce the American market to the region as a whole. And so that was how we ended up in the cellars of Jacques Perrin in, in 1966. And managed to convince Jacques, who was the, kind of the patriarch of the Perrin family, who was, who've owned and run Beaucastel since the early 20th century, convinced him to, to appoint him as their American agent, but also to agree to lend him his two sons to travel around the United States with him and introduce Americans, not just to Beaucastel, but Chateauneuf-du-Pape and the Rhone Valley more generally. Um, and so, so they did. He would make a couple trips every year to different U.S. markets with Jean-Pierre and, and Francois Perrin, Jacques' two sons. And this was also the era at which he was representing some of the first generation of Napa and Sonoma wineries to hit the national scene. People like Kistler and Phelps and Ridge and Chapelet and Spring Mountain. And anytime he had one of the parents with him in San Francisco, they'd drive up to wine country for the day and taste wines and talk about what they thought. Was he very savvy and connected and, and really loved relationships in, in that way? Or was he just a good networker? Or what was it about? The world of wine was small. Yeah. I mean, you think 50 years ago, I mean, there were, what, a few dozen wineries in Napa? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe 50? Um, the number of, of producers that there were in France, lots of little people, people were making wines. But when he started representing Bocastel, they were one of like, four producers in Chateauneuf-du-Pape that were even a state bottling. Everybody else was just selling their production off to the cooperative. So, um, I mean, he was a real believer in wines of place, that wines should be made from a specific place by people who lived in that place and lived that place. And he certainly took, he had a more global view than just about anybody else in the, in the wine world at the time, because he was, he was based on the East Coast. He was an importer. He'd spent, I mean, years of his life in, in France, but he was fascinated by the potential of California and certainly found kind of kindred spirits in Jean-Pierre and Francois Perrin, who were both fascinated by what they saw when they went to California. And that was really the beginning of, of the idea that would become Tablas Creek is that they visited these, these wineries making Cabernet and Chardonnay mostly. And was your dad really ahead of his time where a lot of people going, whoa, oh, what, yeah, what do you want to, Bob? This is something. He was consistently a decade or two ahead of his time. Really? I mean, for better and for worse. Yeah. I mean, there were times where he would, like he tried to introduce Oregon wines to the national market in the, in the early 1980s. Like he was 15 years ahead of his time. Sure. But yeah, I mean, he, he and they came away saying, you know, there's great potential here, but why in this Mediterranean climate is nobody planting the grapes that we love? The Rhone grapes, the, the Rhone, Rhone varieties. Grapes, which are from the Mediterranean part of France and which should be great fits in California if you can find the right soils and climate and rainfall. So that was that was the genesis of the idea. And, and Paso came second. It wasn't like they came into this with an idea that, this, that Paso was going to be the right place. If you'd asked them at the beginning, they would have said, eh, probably Sonoma. Um, but they kept looking for soils and, and ended up four years into the search down here in Paso and bought property and imported vines and off they went. 
And then talk about the, the micro decision. So you, you settle on Paso. Now you're looking, you're looking east, you're looking west. You, you go west side, you go now what is now known as the Adelaide district of uh, Paso Robles. Why that site? So they were looking for these calcareous soils, which are mostly found in the hills west of town. I mean, you can find them in a few places elsewhere in Paso, but the, 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 the biggest outcroppings are out there. Um, and they also wanted to be close enough to the coast to have good rainfall because we, we knew we wanted to dry farm from the beginning. Um, and we wanted some altitude because that was going to help cool things down a little bit um, and also going to provide some better wind flow and better drainage of air. So you add those things together, you only find that higher rainfall, calcareous soils, altitude. I mean, you find it in Northwest Paso with what, what's now the Adelaide District. That makes sense. Talk about being a resource to other wineries in the sense, I mean, you have the, your, the trials, the fact that you planted all of their own varieties over the last, you know, 30 years. We just did the last one a couple of years back uh, just to see how they would do in, in Paso. And of course, the clones, the clones are all over the place now. So there's lots of ways where you guys have almost been like a resource for a lot of other wineries and really leading in that way. Well, I think, and this is the decision that my dad and the parents made early on. I mean, they, they realized that what we were doing was largely in a category that didn't exist yet. So, I mean, yeah, you had Randall Graham, you had a few, you had Bob Linquist, you had a few people who were, who were doing Rhone varieties, but they were sort of scattered around California. There wasn't really a movement built around it. And a lot of the raw materials they had to work with weren't that well established. So they made the decision early on, like even before we had vines in the ground, that instead of trying to keep these new clones proprietary, that they were going to make them available to anybody who wanted to plant them because they felt that the biggest thing that was holding back the category was that the clones themselves weren't great. And if they could get these clones into circulation, then we'd all benefit. The kind of rising tide lifts all the boats. Right, sure. Can you name all of the uh, 13, 14 Rhone varieties? Like, can you just like rattle them off? Sure. Let's go ahead. Okay. So on the red side, uh, <laughs> come on, I wouldn't be very good at this if I, if I could. some game show um, music behind it. I love it. So uh, on the red side, Morvedra, Grenache, Syrah, Cunoise, Sanso, Terre Noire, Vacares, Muscardin. Okay. Um, those are the reds. And, that, and the last one is the one you just brought in. That one just got grafted into the vineyard last year. So that was the last arrival. Wow. And on the white side, you have Roussan, Grenache Blanc, Picpoul, Claret, Picardin, Bourbalanc. I think that's it. Did you say Marsan? Marsan's not a Chateauneuf variety. Oh, okay. Marsan and Viognier that are Cote du Rhone. I was trying to get all the Chateauneuf Oh, oh good, good. Okay. So okay. there's 14 in Chateauneuf. Okay. And then Viognier and Marsan that so are I was trying, I was trying to get you, but I couldn't even get you. Yeah, that? <laughs> Can we 14. stop and just have a moment of silence for Roussan? I just love that one. Roussan, isn't it just such a great... It's so much fun to drink on its own. It's so much fun. Yeah, cheers. It's so much fun to... It blends so well. Roussan has got to be one of the home runs of the of the white varieties that you just named. Oh sure, I mean it's a it's an amazing grape. It's it's just really hard to grow. Ripens late, it ripens unevenly. Um, ripens unevenly, kind of like Zin. Well, not within a cluster, particularly, but it's because the vines are relatively low vigor. If you have any sort of pests or you've got any virus, um, you can have really uneven health on a on a in a block. So you can have vines where the leaves are only partly green and they're yellow by the beginning of August, and you have other ones that are bright green that that are photosynthesizing better and ripen faster. So you've got to make, we've got to make three or four passes through our Roussan blocks every year. My most, my most prized wine that I ever purchased was a Roussan, old vine Roussan from Beau Castel. 
I mean, I just have never been so. I'm like, I don't even care how much this bottle is. I will be taking one home. You know, and you're probably only allowed to buy one. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so funny because it's when I'm so bad at this at home. Like, there'll just be a good day. Like, I'll come home from a good day, and I'll be like, Hey, babe, let's open that. And she's like, Don't even tell me. Don't even say it the book style. No, we are waiting on those. So, <laughs> I've tried to no avail for a long time. So after planting all those and seeing what's come of, has there been one that's just like, yeah, didn't didn't wasn't really a home run here. Not all of them are grapes you'd necessarily want to make on their own, um, but I don't think there's any of them that we've tried here and said, ah, never mind, it's just not worth it. There's sure. nothing that we've pulled out. There's nothing that we've decided um, we're just going to move away from. There's There are grapes that we know take more time. I mean, the vines have to be a little older in order to really show what they're great at. There's grapes that I think we're still... We're still working to, to, I think, match what they do in the old world. But there's other grapes that I think we've already we've already gone past what the examples in in the Rhone Valley can show us. So Tapas Creek fun. is really cool to me because, like, if you are thinking of some of these varieties, you can go to you know on your portfolio and get a varietal bottle of it. And not a lot of places you just can you go buy a bottle of Marsan or a bottle of Roussan or I mean, gosh, like your Vermentino. That's pretty cool. Well, we realized that in a lot of cases, we were working with grape varieties that people in America didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so and I remember when we opened our tasting room, and at that time, and we opened it back in 02, and we were mostly making blends at that point. And we would say, oh, well, this uh, this is our esprit. It's based on Morvedra with Grenache and Syrah and Cunois. And people, people would say, so Morvedra, what, what's that like? Yeah. Um, and we realized, you know, it would be incredibly helpful for us and maybe for our community at large if we could actually say, okay, Morvedra, great. You've never had 100% Morvedra? Here, try one. Kunwaz, you've never heard of Kunwaz? It's a great blending grape. It's got great acid. Do you want to try some? Um, so it really grew out of that focus on education where we realized that we, we needed to help get people inside this world of Rhone varieties, which can be kind of intimidating because it's a lot of grapes. A lot of the grapes are hard to pronounce. And they're rarely seen on their own in, in the other parts of the world. So you sort of have three strikes against them already. And if you can't figure out a way to give people a toehold into that, I think you have an uphill battle. And we feel like that's a, that having, those, having those bottlings as varietal examples is a, is, a, is a hugely useful tool. Okay, well, we were growing up, boy bands were a thing for a while. And now it's K-pop, right? So let's pretend the Rhone varieties are like a K-pop band. Uh, who's like, which, which is like the bad boy? Of, of the Rhone varieties? Um, on the red side, I would say it's Syrah. And not because it's always difficult, but because it often doesn't really care about pleasing you. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it makes you kind of come to it. It tends to be more savory, less fruity, tends to be a little more tannic, needs more time to, to resolve. And that's important because Grenache is like that puppy dog that's licking you in the face the whole time it's like all juicy and vibrant and ready to drink right away and you need you need that kind of push and pull who's the pretty boy of the roan varieties well on the white side it's definitely viognier uh, viognier is the the one um that like you can't miss it like it's it's up right front smiling at you the whole time um to the point that it's a little bit like, okay, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, on the white side, it's Viognier. On the red side, uh, Grenache is awfully pretty. Yeah, oh, it sure is. Um, and I think that sells it short a little bit because it's got depth too. But I think at least the first impression, it, it can sometimes come across as... What did uh, Molly Lomborg simple. say? Grenache delivers what Pinot promises. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a useful comparison for people because Pinot um, is... 
is kind of uh, spicy and vibrant and earthy and Grenache is all those things, but it tends to have a little more, a little more intensity, a little more power of fruit, a little more acid. Okay, the misunderstood one. Who's the misunderstood oh, member? Clearly Morvedra. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's no question. We can't um, even say it. You can't even say yeah. it. Um, many of the examples you have from the old world are not ripe, and so they're just hard and tannic and all like earth and bark and forest and... Um, and yet, when you get it ripe in a place like Paso, which is not a stretch, I mean, you get, we get more better ripe every year. Um, it's beautiful. It's got that kind of earthy, loamy element, but it's also got chocolate, and it's got dark red fruit, and it's got leather, and it turns to truffles, and it's an amazing grape. But I think a lot of people think of it as being this kind of difficult grape yeah. that's just just fits a niche. The only podcast that's going to take all of the uh, Rhone varieties and put it to a K-pop band. I love it. Uh, Jason Haas is here from Tablas Creek. Over 30 years ago, Tablas Creek started in what was a very different Paso Robles. Yeah. I mean, you look at the way things are now, it's unreal. What are some of the changes that you've seen and when you drive down Spring Street now or that you feel and see and look like, oh, wow, this, oh, wow, that. What is the evolution of Paso? How has it hit? How has it hit you? I just love the other things that have grown up around Paso. I mean, the, I, I feel like there was a stretch where the wine was ahead of the rest of the infrastructure. Um, but in the last decade, I mean, we've gotten restaurants and hotels and shops. And now I'll, I'll drive downtown. I mean, even, even in the time of COVID, you drive downtown on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday evening. I mean, the downtown's hopping. I mean, there's lots of people out. There's... There's places for them to go. There's stuff for them to do. There's enough restaurants that you can come here for a week and not repeat yourself and still have places you want to hit afterwards. That's, for me, the most exciting thing. I remember talking to Justin Baldwin when, uh, when I, I, I was early out here and having him say that when they started Justin in 1983, the, the, the best meal in town was the tuna melt at the bowling alley. <laughs> uh, my first time out here, the best meal in town, I think, was the Denny's. Like, sure, right. This was 94. Right. Um, so just that, that it's now really a destination and has all of the other pieces that you would want in a destination, but still feels still feels authentic. It still, still feels like the country, still feels like um, a place which is really driven by, by, by families and by kind of family-run businesses is, I think, a pretty special thing. You know, one thing that has made I feel this uh, podcast so special equal to what makes Paso so special. I mean, look, we've talked about this idea where you can drive a lot of different directions for several hours and find some uh, wine country that makes some world-class wines, but the people of this area are one of these intangibles in why this area is so special. Talk about the people a little bit and what kind of dynamic that has, has had on you. Well, I think every the tone is set for a region by the pioneers there. I mean, not that it can't change over time. It always does change to a certain extent. But you think of the, the kind of way that the Gary Eberlees and the Jerry Lores and the Ken Volks kind of set up Paso first, their own brand second, um, and then just kept talking about Paso, kept bringing more people on board. And you look at that next generation, the the Justin Baldwins or my dad or Stefano Seo or um, again, the people who came a little bit later um, and it was really the same thing. It was, let's figure out how to get people, let, let's get ourselves involved in the organizations that help 
support this community. And then let's bring other people in from the outside. So there is really much more of a kind of all-for-one, one-for-all ethos here than there is in the other regions that I see. And I, I don't know if that's because it is still influenced by the style of those founders. I don't know if it's because it's far enough away from a lot of the big population centers that, in general, the people who run the wineries here live here. Uh, it's very different than, than Napa and Sonoma, where a lot of people live elsewhere in the Bay Area. Yeah. And, um, and even Santa Barbara, you say the same thing. You see a lot of people who live in L.A. and um, own wineries in Santa Barbara. They're not really a part of the community in the right. same way. Right, you're totally right. Um, so I think that's a piece of it. Um, and then I think that the work that the organizations, I mean, you think of somebody like the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance, whether it's back in the Stacy Jacob days or Jen Porter or now now under Joel, um, the work that those those groups are doing to bring everyone together to make sure that everyone feels like there's a home for them and it's benefit huge. for them being involved. It's, it's, it's huge and it's effective. Yeah. Um, I think it's really effective. I mean, I've talked to Santa Barbara County winemakers who will just straight be honest with you and be like, yeah, we're disjointed down here. Like, there's a reason where people are driving from L.A. They're driving through our world-class wine country to come to Paso. Like, they've straight told me that. Yeah, yeah no, it's true. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's important to remember that even if that's the starting point that you inherit, it's you've got to continue to work at it. Yeah. And that was a decision. I remember we had a, we do the every five years, we've started doing it more often, but every five years at least we do these retreats where all of the key people at Tablas basically sit down and be like, okay, what do we want? Where do we want to be in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? Um, And one of the early ones that we did, we were like, you know, we really want to make sure that we're doing our part to keep the spirit of Paso Robles, um, as united and as vibrant as as it's been, and so that's dictated a lot of our choices. I've spent the last eight years on the board of directors of the of the Wine Country Alliance. My dad helped set up the AVA committee that divided up and created the eleven sub AVAs. And we've, I mean, we 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 make the conscious choice to get involved because if you don't get involved, you wait for somebody else to do it. You run the risk of losing what makes the place special. Any new fans of Tabas Creek, uh, they won't. Uh, know of your dad or they won't uh, have not met him or know that that imprint he had what do you think is part of the lifeblood of tabas creek that they will be exposed to that is directly from your dad where does your dad still shine very much in the daily tabas creek and there's so many places where i feel like that's true um maybe the most concrete way is that i mean every business that he started and i mean there were several before tabas creek um, one of the things that really characterized them is is the longevity of the people who who he hired and who worked there. So if you think of the key people out of Tablas, I mean, I've been out there 18 years. Um, Denise Chenard, who's our controller, worked for my dad at Vineyard Brands before and has been out there now 24 years. Neil Collins, who's our winemaker, has been there 22 years. Um, Chelsea Franchi, who's our assistant winemaker, she's been there 12 years. And our tasting room manager, John Morris, has been there 16 years. And our wine club director, Nicole Getty, has been there 15 years. And it's, it's basically wow. um, the, the idea that you want to make sure, you want to empower your people to so that they have ownership in the things that they do and they have the ability to to be creative and and feel a part of something bigger, something that my dad really believed in and that I've tried as hard as I can to continue. Um, so I think that's a huge piece of it. Uh, personally, what do you miss about your dad the most day to day? 
his just years and years of experience being able uh, to ask him something yeah there's a, I, I still more often than anything else i i think of my dad when it's like oh man i wish i had him to ask this question i too. know i know huh um whatever i'm super lucky i had him of course i got a chance to i mean he made it to almost 91 i got a chance to work with him for 16 years um which is i mean whatever. i moved out here when he was already in his 70s like that was i got pretty lucky in the grand scheme of things but yeah those are the times often where like oh, okay well i wish i I would love to have known what he would have thought of this. It's really neat to see the reason we're sitting talking about all of this right now. Lots of reasons why Paso is what it is are because of where one took Bob Haas. Final little um, chats on Tablas. How can people taste you? Are we tasting inside yet? And I know you know, you listen to this, and you know it's changing so much, <laughs> so often. So, uh, oh, man, we- I feel like we're in, we're we're much more stable than we were. <sighs> True. Uh, I felt like the first, whatever, the first few months of COVID, like you didn't know, right? You didn't know what the next day was going to look did like. You ever, did you ever have some sleepless nights wondering if Tabas Creek would be able to outlast this? Sure. Wow. Um, I'm grateful for the amazing support that we've gotten from our wine club members and, and from the community at large. And we survived through this, the, the kind of COVID intense COVID period in better shape than I ever would have thought. What so, is regenerative farming? I'm, I'm so interested in that. So we got the... News that we were the first winery in the world to be regenerative organic certified. Um, and that just came out in August. Big topic. Um, so the idea basically is that um, you're trying to farm in a way that reverses a lot of the, a lot of the environmental impact of industrial life. So you're trying to farm in a way that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and out of the atmosphere and fixes it in the soil. You're trying to farm in a way that reduces the input that you need of limited resources like water or fertilizer or things like that, um, and that you are also um, ensuring that you are you're treating your people well and you're treating any animals that are working for you well. So it's basically being set up to be kind of a new gold standard in sustainable farming where you take the elimination of chemicals from organics, the focus on soil health and biodiversity from biodynamics, add that pillar of resource use reduction, so carbon capture, move towards dry farming, move towards no-till, and then add those pillars of farm worker fairness and animal welfare. Um, and it's the the big push behind it came from Patagonia, who wanted to make sure that their whole supply chain was farming in a way that was consistent with their values. Um, and they helped set up a, a nonprofit called the Regenerative Organic Alliance that then did the the heavy lifting of integrating with the National Organic Program standards, integrating with Demeter and the Biodynamic standards, um, and then creating these auditable, scientific, measurable targets that if you wanted to be a part of it, you you had to hit is it tough i think it would be hard if you were starting from this kind of modern chemical farming standpoint i mean we were already certified organic and biodynamic we were already had that flock of 200 sheep that you've had some fun contact with yeah um (laughs) that um they they play a huge role in turning that's weird (laughs) sorry about that maybe i should say that a little bit qualify that a little bit better (laughs) next time it's funny it's all good um we'll leave it to the listener's imagination i Hope. They did chase you out of the paddock at one point. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, but the idea is that those animals, are they, they play a huge role because your plants are pulling 
carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, it's just photosynthesis, what happens. But um, that gets turned right back and released in a normal process, whereas animals who will graze your cover crop, and turn it, they return 80% of that biomass into the soil in forms of their manure, and that's fixed there. So that's now carbon that's not going back into the atmosphere. It's available for your plants, but it's also enriching the soil. So it's a process, and I, I think it's a process that everybody can work towards. And in fact, that if we don't get a big chunk of farmers around the world working towards, we're going to have a really hard time addressing the, the big picture issues of climate change and water scarcity and things that we know are going to be big, big issues over the next century. Yeah. Regenerative farming. You think more people will, you know, buy into this? I mean, like, obviously you guys are always leaders in things like this. And I imagine, you know, brands see this and go, you know what? I can do that. We're going to, we're going to make this effort to do this. I mean, we've already got probably a dozen other wineries around California who have reached out to us since we got the certification in August saying, okay, this is the future. How do we be a part of this? Yeah. So yeah, for sure. I think it's going to be really big, really big news. And it's big news beyond the world of wine because regenerative organic again there 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 is a wine standard but there's a standard for orchards and a standard for row crops and a standard for fibers and a standard for livestock so i'd be like i'm gonna get into your regenerative farming but i need a patagonia jacket those things are expensive <laughs> <laughs> i can't afford one of those so you hook me up with a jacket we'll start with you talking about regenerative farming i love it well i can't thank you enough jason this has been so much fun the 2006 esprit de beaucastel blanc this is a blend of what roussan grenache blanc and picpoul that's why I'm going at it so much. That's why I'm about to revisit it for my third time. It is a beautiful bottle of wine. You guys are leading in so many ways. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to seeing you out at Tabas Creek really soon. Of course. Thanks, Adam. So give me that moonshine. We'll get by. we pass on around till the job is Get out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Thank you to Jason Haas. Man, that 06 got me feeling like I need a wine pairing. Headed downtown to 13th in Spring. Parked the ride in front of the largest, and brightest for that matter, mural in the city on the side of the newest and hottest eatery in Paso, La Petite Canaille. It means little rascal in French. We talked to executive chef and owner Julian Haseo. I'm meeting up with chef in his empty dining room about 60 minutes before a busy dinner service begins. Cheers, buddy. Well, I'm drinking water in me because I got a big night ahead of me. But <laughs> The little rascal. Yes. Well, a big rascal now, but <laughs> I, got a, I got a third little rascal on the way. So You do? You have another little petite canaille on the way? Yeah. Uh, the third? Not that I was busy enough uh, in 2020, you know, I figured uh, what's another uh, another baby. So Did you plan this one? Is that no, what you ask? It was definitely the surprise uh, rascal. Yeah. You know, it's great. I mean. So, some positiveness uh, in, the, in the craziness of 2020. So, it's yeah, beautiful. baby's due on uh, October 12th. And uh, so soon, you know, oh family's growing. Restaurants are notoriously a hard bet. They're a hard go. If you live in the area, you know the area, you know. It feels like sometimes San Luis Obispo, Slow Proper, and Paso will kind of ebb and flow on who's got the better restaurant game. And for a while, it was Paso. And then for a while, Slow had all these, you know, they got Ember down there. You got a lot going on. And uh, Paso was like, we need to. And then I remember in the year that you were like, when we heard you were coming, it was like, oh man, this is exactly what we needed. And it's tough because sometimes you have a 
hype and it's impossible to live up to the hype. And man, you not only lived up to it, but over delivered in the ambiance, the take, the cuisine here. I mean, it is really something special for Paso. I can imagine you're thrilled. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, you're right. You know, we uh, there was a lot of expectation. We uh, we had a lot of expectation from ourselves too. You know, I mean, we we knew we were uh, kind of the new kid on the block, and uh, we were just extremely, you know, um, happy and and grateful about just uh, the support we got right off the bat. You know. You know, from the local community. Did you feel like a little bit of a leg up, though? I mean, you know, obviously, we've got to talk about the familial history. I mean, for folks, I mean, first of all, when people are really trying to find the best wines in Paso, they end up finding uh, La Ventura. They just end yeah. up finding La Ventura. And your dad was uh, a gentleman who uh, was making wine in Bordeaux yeah. and was like, I want to be able to do what I want to do. In Paso, I can do that. That's it, you know. And so, I mean, for me, it was kind of like he. Uh, He's one of my biggest inspiration, and you know, it's someone I I look up to as a as a person, but also on the on the whole business approach, you know. And so, obviously, to to see the growth of Laventure, you know, it's going to be twenty two years now. It's amazing. So, you know, I, coming back to Paso, I also, you know, it it was a double edged sword because uh, people knew who I was, you know, from um, from the family name. But at the same time, I didn't want to be known as Stefan's son, you know. And so, that's tough, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, and again, it, it kind of like it made me had to kind of prove myself, you know. Um, like I want my own chef, name. I want my own uh, name. Exactly. So again, it was great because you know, there's a lot of history behind um, the name and me coming back. A lot of people have seen me grow growing up here. You know, I mean, old Eric Jensen and. Justin Smith from all those guys you know who's been who've been around for a while and so it was kind of cool to come back you know grown up and and to start something of my own you know with my wife and uh, and is has really been amazing you know we're about to celebrate our first year November 1st uh, which is surreal because again like you mentioned earlier opening a restaurant on its own is tough so yet alone opening one in a global know, pandemic global pandemic has just been um, kind of crazy but at the same time you know uh, it's there's been a lot of silver lining out of this whole year and I think you know we've been trying really to look at the glass more half full than half empty don't get me wrong you know there's been days where it's been rough and challenging was there ever a day you, you, you were in bed it's tough to sleep and you wondered through COVID, would La Petite Canaille, would we last? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, uh, there's been plenty of, of times when... Uh, I mean, I, I just asked, asked that question of Jason Haas of Tablas Creek. He said the same thing. I mean, I think everybody at this point, yeah. you know, especially when it all started and during the, the lockdown and, you know, it was just so new and unknown. Like, we, we, we didn't know what to expect, you know. I feel like we've come a long way since then. Um, you know, it's still happening. It's still part of our life. And But again, you know, I think we've, we've tried to uh, make the best out of the situation. People have been understanding. You know, guests have been um, continuing supporting. I don't think just us, but just the whole area of Paso Robles. You know, we've been getting this tremendous support locally. But then also we've been getting, you know... Um, a lot of tourism uh, from um, from big cities, and it's been great. You know, honestly, uh, it's uh, we're we're kind of. 
I'm sure like everybody uh, ready to get through 2020. Yeah. But it's not that bad, honestly. Yeah. You know? It's really interesting. And I remember talking to a dude who, uh, um, uh, Bouchon, Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah. And Mitchell was like explaining how a restaurant like that, you know, also a very elevated, like you're like a, a high level cuisine. I mean, you know, we didn't, we never did take out food before. Now we're trying to do takeout and like, you know, we thought maybe let's take out um, the, the vegetables or take out the starches and then you just do the meat and the vegetables and then maybe they can pay extra for the starches. Turned out people did. And like all different ways to, yeah. to just try and wrap your head around being as high level and high end as, as your cuisine and this vibe is. I mean, don't get me wrong, this vibe is still approachable. You I mean, you welcome anybody to come in here. But Absolutely. You, but you were going to knock their socks off when it comes to the cuisine. Yeah. And, uh, Again, I think you know it's uh, it's allowed us to rethink a lot of things, uh, restructure. Um, obviously, the whole takeout for us, you know, when uh, when the lockdown happened, was something I'd never done before. You know, so it was it was quite challenging at first, but a little bit humbling in a way. Yeah, humbling, and also I think it really pushed us to step out of our comfort zone. It allowed us to become more. Um, complete, you know, as a chef, as a restaurant owner, because it allowed us to um, to explore different areas, you know, of our business that I personally never had done before, and uh, and so I think again, you know, there's been a lot of silver lining out of this whole situation, and we uh, again we restructure a lot. We realize that we could be actually more efficient with less people kind of restructure a menu uh, similar kind of what you're saying about Bouchon, you know, where we, we made the menu a little more, um, first of all, a little smaller. I realized my menu was a little big. I mean, you know, I had a lot of ambition when I started. And sure. just like any young chef who starts, you know, you just really want to wow everyone. And also a $36 meal when you're doing a takeout doesn't quite translate the yeah. same. Maybe if you make that 26 or 24 yeah, and you know, we, we also realized that our original menu that we had in place at the time of uh, when COVID hit uh, just wasn't really takeout friendly. And so, you know, one day I came home and I was a little, you know, overwhelmed and frustrated. And I told my wife, I say, you know, we got to we got to f- do a full 180 like this is not working and we got to we got to change something. And so the next day I uh, decided to go on this kind of streak of takeovers. And so for the next two months, we began doing uh, every two weeks. We changed the concept, the entire concept of the restaurant. Wow. Yeah. So it was it's kind of lunatic because, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like reopening a restaurant every two weeks. But Your supply chain's like, what are you doing? Well, you yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was, because uh, we did a, a French-Mexican takeover. And so I was ordering, you know, um, hot chilies and, you know, tortillas and stuff like that. And massa for the corn. And my, my uh, supplies were like, oh, what's going on? And I didn't realize you <laughs> used that in French cuisine. So it was really fun. I think that also allowed us to um, show to everyone that, you know, we weren't just a French restaurant. And I wasn't just a classically French trained chef. You know, I just wanted to make, because we're only cooking for the locals at that time. And for me, it was a way of kind of, you know, saying, hey, you know, we're going to switch it up a little bit. You guys are supporting us, so let's have fun through this. Um, Good for you. And the whole concept was like, since you know we can't travel, let's bring the travel to you. So we did like Greek food, we did 
French Mexican. We did like a New Orleans style uh, seafood boil, and then I uh, I did like a everything. It was a chicken shack. It was like everything chicken. So it was really cool. After that, a lot of people ended up like requesting some of those dishes again, you know, because it really uh, it really did very well. So you know, it allowed us to stay creative, uh, allowed us to kind of keep the the momentum going, the excitement. And uh, and it allowed us to kind of glide through uh, through the lockdown, and then since then, you know, it's just been it's still been a roller coaster, you know, because we're able to uh, reopen for a month, and then we got shut down again, and it was Things outdoor seating, all the time. and you know, we've just been a we've learned to roll with the punches. Yeah, it's like thank you for the outdoor seating while the AQI is a uh, four hundred. Yeah, and, and so like you know the fight. thing too, yeah. you know, you're battling, uh, you know, if it's not a. Uh, COVID, but it's the, the global warming that we're experiencing, you know, it's the, the fires, fires. Yeah. it's just, I just feel like everybody's a little over 2020, including the planet Earth, uh, and so, but we're just, you know, having to deal with that the best we can this year, and hoping for the best. This podcast is called Where Wine Takes You. And, you know, maybe more appropriately for you, it could be where food takes you or cuisine or... So to go back to where wine took me, I think... Uh, it took me a lot of places, you know, um, and not necessarily physically. I think that luxury of being able to get access to certain wines really fortify my love for wine and food. Because again, you know, uh, like you say, they, they go hand to hand together. And so, you know, I really fortify the fact that one day I wanted to create a place where I could bring all that amazing travel and experience into um, a home, which is Les Petites Canailles. And it was also about staying true to myself, staying true to where we're at, which is Paso Robles. And, uh, and I think that's what we've, uh, we've accomplished. You're always learning. You're always evolving. How did your cuisine pivot and tweak a little bit from being centered and creating a foundation here in Paso? Well, to be honest, again, you know, and that's the perfect example, I think, of, you know, when we started the menu, how it was then and how it is now. I mean, I, I think as you grow, as you get more settled in, you evolve, you're more at ease with yourself and what you're doing, and you're not necessarily trying to show off but rather you're trying to really cook with your you know, soul and heart and, and really what the food you believe in. So, you know, I, I always love cooking the food we cook right now. You know, that was always my dream, uh, even though, you know, I went to work for a Michelin star restaurant and chef. And, but where my heart was was always kind of this great food, but approachable, you know. And so after moving to Paso... And realizing, you know, the ingredients we're surrounded with and more and more, you know, I mean, it's only been a year we're here, but I'm really starting more and more to really try to develop a relationship with the local farmers. You know, I just on this new menu, we're bringing um, amazing ducks from Liberty Farm up north, which is probably some of the best duck I've had, you know, outside of France. And so for me, just, you know, building more and more those connections with um, people on the same um, level as I am as far as, you know, passion and, you know, um, a love for quality uh, has been really neat. So I think, you know, uh, my, my food is evolving as I'm 
getting older, as I'm cooking more, as I'm selling in more in Paso. But it will never, you know, uh, I don't think I'll ever lose track of who I am and the food I want to cook, you know, so. Let's wet some palates right now. What are uh, some of the menu items that are really hitting home runs here right now and things that you're excited about? So, you know, it's interesting because we're about to wrap our summer menu and start our fall menu uh, this coming Monday. So, Yeah, let's talk that fall menu. Yeah, so I'm super excited. Obviously, every season's fun. You know, every menu changes are fun because you kind of like just... Go along with the season and the produce. What nature, what's yeah, in, exactly yeah. what nature gives you. So, like I was saying, you know, I'm super stoked about uh, those uh, ducks. I'm, I finally, I've been meaning to put a duck on the menu for a long time. You know, a lot of our guests have uh, asked, you know, when we would put a duck on the menu. So, uh, and I'm again, I'm extremely happy to to be working with uh, with such great uh, ducks. What are you doing, with the duck? So it's going to be the duck breast, and it's going to be served with a, like a variation of beets, you know, so beets are we're heading into like more like the root vegetables, beets, stuff like that. So we're going to have some beautiful uh, local baby beets. We're going to have a beet puree with peanut butter. So Ooh. go figure. You know, peanut butter in French food is uh, it's kind of uh, interesting, but the combination is just amazing. And that definitely makes the beets sound sexy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you, it brings this nuttiness, and uh, you still have the sweet and earthiness of the bean, and it's just, uh, it's something thing I used to do before and I, uh, I've been meaning to bring it back and so I'm super excited about that. You literally make a bee puree and then just put like a little bit of like exactly. high-end peanut butter in it. That's and it. So obviously you don't want to put too much because you don't want to overpower the sure. bee. But you, you just, at, as you take a bite, you have this depth and nuttiness, you know, from the, from the peanut that is really, really cool. So uh, that's going to be a fun duck dish. Uh, we're bringing in uh, monkfish, which... I was a little septic at first just because it's not your average fish, but I just cooked some last week and I, you know, I just remember how much I love that fish. And again, you know, it's, we're all about being authentic here, bringing things that you can't really find anywhere else. And you can't really find monkfish, you know, around here. Which, so for me, it's neat, you know, because we always try to have a little bit of a educational uh, approach in our food and, you know, bring, uh, bring something to the guests that they're not very familiar with. And obviously cook it in a way where they're like, wow, this is amazing. And Do you mess with some of the, the, the staples of French cuisine, whether it's cassoulet or... Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's it's so funny you ask because cassoulet is going to be probably a winter dish. Yeah. Uh, but definitely, you know, cassoulet, blanquette de veau. We'll probably bring back the beef cheek bourguignon because we've of been getting tons of requests. And Escargot? Yeah, so escargot, well, you know, we had it on our menu before... Uh, COVID, but we'll, we'll bring it back, you know, so again, it's about the whole fun part about, you know, the restaurant is that the menu uh, evolves every season. There's some dishes that will become signature and won't leave. I mean, the tartare, I'm not going to be able to take it off. Oh, no, no, no. There's a few of those dishes that will stay uh, and become staples of the restaurant. But then, you know, there'll be some dishes that will make a comeback. There'll be dishes that, you know, are new. And so it's just fun. And, and also just about kind of being creative and have a different approach on those kind of traditional French dishes uh, and just put my twist on them. I bet your Rolodex got a lot thicker when you open. All these people coming in, you're meeting so many people, so many winemakers are excited to, you know, either come in here, hey, how can we work with you? How can we do a dinner with you? Yeah. I bet that, you know, gaining all these relationships has been pretty, pretty incredible. 
Yeah, it's been amazing. And again, you know, we, we live in a wonderful community. I mean, the community here in Paso is just like really outstanding. As I was mentioning earlier, there's a lot of old friends, you know, uh, that I've known since I was a kid. And then a lot of new friends and uh, a lot of new relationships I've, I've built since we got here. And, uh, and it's something, honestly, that down the road, again, you know, once we figure out a little bit more what's happening in our world right now, that I would love to bring back, you know, do some uh, winemaker dinners, do some uh, guest chef dinners, you know, and really continue to, to keep an excitement, continue to, to partner up and, and showcase all the wonderful people that, that make this community, you know, and are part of this community. So, yeah, it's super exciting. What did you see that Paso needed? I feel like, you know, because you do have a lot of history with the place. Like you said, you come back and visit a lot. When Were you more like, hey, this is what I'm about? Like, I want, I just want to express where I'm at with my cuisine and my love for Paso this way and then just let the chips fall where they may? Or was it like, I'm going to be strategic and look for the holes in the cuisines here and see where I can fill them? How do you, how do you have to approach that? Uh, I mean, it was a little bit of both. I think for me, like you were saying, you know, I think Paso had this really like super hot food scene, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And then it kind of fell down a little bit. Um, like some good places closed. I mean, some... Great places are still open. Sure. Uh, but I felt like it kind of like plateaued. Yeah. yeah, plateaued a little bit. And so for me, it was just really kind of like I, I wanted to come back to Paso. You know, I wanted to be part of this community. I wanted to make Paso home. And I also wanted to bring my vision of a restaurant uh, to Paso. And then after I, I thought that what we were bringing with, uh, with LPC, you know, was not here yet. You know, I like so, the LPC. Yeah. LPC, well, just, yeah, you yeah, know exactly. me. <laughs> you know, Le Petit Canai can be a little tricky sometimes. No, so sure. LPC is, uh, is definitely easier. I like that. But, but yeah, so you know, we wanted to, to kind of bring something uh, a little different that, uh, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't here yet. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you know, we continue in that direction, that more um, you know, young, talented chef and restaurateur see the potential in Paso, and come here in Paso because, you know, the more good level hospitality we have here, the better it is for the entire uh, area. So, you know, for me, it makes me happy to see that, for example, you know, like a place like Alchemist Garden, you know, that just opened, you know, they're, they're keeping in that trend of like innovative, fun, you know, uh, high level um, of hospitality. And so for me, you know, it's definitely the kind of trend I want to continue to see in Paso. You know, so um, so we'll see, and then who knows? You know, maybe they, uh, depending of how things go, we we might we might move on to something else. Really? What Although no, nothing is in the works right now. But you know, I think there's still a lot of room for Paso to grow. And so, Another location? What, Another idea? I mean, maybe we'll see. You've already thought of this. I, you little I, I, devil. I, I'm kind of a masochist, you know, because uh, how do you say I, devil in French? I'm, uh, le diable, la, la petite diable, le, le, le petit diable. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm still trying to figure out this place. Uh, I know, right? 
and I'm already thinking about the next one. No, no. So I, you know, there's nothing really uh, going on right now. But I, in I, your I, head, I, it is a little exactly. Sure, you know, always what keeps me moving yeah. uh, forward and, uh, and, and keep me uh, exactly keep me alive. So it's uh, it's exciting. Okay, so in wine country here, I mean, we got probably three, four hundred different wineries, a hundred and maybe fifty, eighty, hundred eighty tasting rooms. You probably have a lot of people who are like, man, I would love to be on this wine list. You probably have distributors coming in. You got the wine, and not even just the, the distributors. You got the winemakers themselves coming in here and would love to be on this wine list. Now, obviously, you know, La Venture is a staple here. You're going to find some great selections of La Venture, and it is an A-plus winery to be on any list, so you're going to get a special selection when you come here, but how do you kind of juggle all of the other wine lists? Do you have to kind of, you know, play play to, like, I want to kind of help everyone, or I kind of like, look, this is I just got to feel what I feel, and I'm sorry if you don't make it the but, cut, or what? I mean, honestly... You know, when we started this restaurant and we created the wine list, we uh, we had to to pick. You know, we couldn't bring everybody on board. You know, I mean, there's so many. I don't. Well, yeah, I think we're almost at 400 wineries now in Paso. So, so we're really trying to, you know, bring and support as many uh, wineries as we can. After, you know, I think we have created a style of a wine list that's specific to this restaurant. And where, um, you know, without being rude, but, you know, I think not every wine necessarily fit in that wine list. But as much as, you know, we, we really want to try to support and showcase the best of what Paso has to offer. And not just Paso. I mean, I think, you know, if you've been in the restaurant and you've seen our wine list, you, you can tell that there's, there's been a lot of thought put into it. We really try to showcase what you know, my history is about where my roots are, you know, so French and then, you know, half of my life been in Paso. So, you know, we have a strong influence of Paso Robles and then a strong influence of, uh, of uh, old world and French wine. So it's crazy because I feel like a wine list in and of itself creates and the, the thoughtfulness behind creating a wine list is so important because it creates its own personality. Absolutely. And a wine list, when you flip through it, you're handed that as you sit down, that wine list is almost like your first introduction yeah. into the personality of what, what's to come. And uh, I can honestly say that, you know, there's people who come specifically for the wine selection. I mean, again, they know the food's great. They get good hospitality. But, you know, we really have a truly stellar wine list. And that's something we're really proud of. And, uh, and you're right. You know, you're kind of back, you're going back to what you say. You, it makes you travel a little bit, that wine list, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm super proud and excited to, to be able to feature things that, again, you might not be able to find anywhere else, you know. So it's, it's really exciting. I mean, we, we put a lot of thought and uh, love into our wine list, just like anything else we do here. Uh, but it's definitely something where we're extremely proud. And, you know, we were awarded the Wine Spectator Award of Excellence, you know, uh, not That's even huge. after a year of being open. That's crazy. So, you know, there's, a, again, you know, hard work pays off. And, uh, and we're, we're, super, we're super excited about, about what's going on right now. You cook at home? Yeah, a little bit. Is it I, is it frustrating to cook at home? Is it a no, pain in the ass? No, it's actually great. The only thing is I'm not home enough to cook that much. My wife actually does most of the cooking. She's a great cook. She's probably a better home cook than I am. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the kids like that you make? Uh, ooh, so you make some super dynamic. You know, I mean, uh, so my son is a bottomless beat. <laughs> absolutely everything. My daughter is a little more on the picky side. She's pretty ironic, you know, because both of her parents cook well. And uh, if it was up to her, it would be uh, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. She's the hardest critic. Yeah. 
<laughs> and again, exactly, you know, when I'm able to actually cook something and have her like it, it's it's almost like getting a three mission start. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> I bet you make a mean mac and cheese though. Uh, yeah, if you wanted to, like, and you wanted to yeah, spend some time on it. Of course, I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for mac and cheese. You know, Who's so not? it's Who's not? it's always a little more French. You know, so how so? What do you mean? But the, the 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 cheese I use, you know, are usually French, and it's not as the sauce is not as liquidy as a traditional mac and cheese. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, who doesn't love mac and cheese? You can't go wrong with pasta and cheese. No, it's you know? like the top of the yeah, comfort food chain. Exactly. How is kitchen? How is chef? Um, you know, you have like the Gordon Ramsays of the world and chefs. I mean, you. This is you're no stranger to this, and I've interviewed a ton of you guys to know that some of these chefs are pretty hardcore in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and some of their. I mean, you may if it's a doctor, you call it your bedside table manner. Uh, sometimes if it's a chef, it's a little bit different. I've talked to chefs who are talented; they have no talents in dealing with people, and they end up getting bounced around from restaurant to restaurant yeah. because of that. What have you learned from the advent of the celebrity chef to like? The ones that are assholes and are still really popular, like the Gordon Ramsays, to you know, which actually is not an asshole at all. No, I, I imagine I, yeah, I really like him. Seeing you know, because I'm, I was able to meet him. Uh, oh, cool! Pretty, uh, pretty often in Vegas. He's oh, actually nice. an extremely nice guy. So, but, but then, I, then, then you know, we just lost Anthony <coughs> Bourdain a few years ago. Yeah, and that was, that hit folks like you very hard, oh, big time. I mean, every. Uh, uh, very often and we have a little you know uh, portrait of him because we really uh, wanted to uh, have him be part of this place uh, because again he's impacted a lot of us but I think honestly I because uh, I used to be that asshole you know when I uh, when I started uh, as a young chef I was a pit bull you know I because that's how I was trained old school French you know you it's abusive yeah chef yeah chef you get yelled at yeah, you get huh? burned you get Plates thrown out you, you get, you know, just bullied physically, mentally. It's tough. You yeah. know? And so, but again, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, this old school training of it, it teaches you and it builds you to become a machine, you know. And so, so at the beginning, you know, I was, I was like that. You know, it was rough. I would scream. I would. And then I realized that after I lost half of my team that it clearly wasn't working and you know the the time had changed and you just had to adapt with you know the times we're in right now and so I think it taught me to be a lot more calm to be a lot more patient understanding don't get me wrong you know you fuck up you're gonna get yelled at especially if it's something that a mistake you've done before you know because that's on you you know, you make a mistake once, that's fine. You do it again, that's on you, you know. So, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, you know, you can ask my team. I'm, I'm a pretty, you know, fair, uh, caring guy uh, because, again, you know, um, you can be the greatest chef in the world. Without a team, you're nothing. Yeah. You know, and, and we've so, talked about this idea of like, uh, I mean, even my girlfriend says happy eggs come from happy chickens. Yeah. And happy food comes from a, a happy kitchen. That's extreme. It can't be more true, you know. And uh, when you're cook, when you're anxious, when you're scared, when you're unhappy, your food will taste like that. Yeah. Wow. You know. And so, again, I think it starts from the top. You got to you gotta be a good leader in order to, you know, motivate and, uh, and really kind of drive uh, your, your team and, and really enforce that passion. Uh, and so they see that with me. You know, I'm here at 9 a.m. I'm breaking down fish. I'm scrubbing uh, 
uh, dishes. I, I don't care, you know. It's uh, but but it's got to start from the st- from the top, you know. For me, it's big to to lead by example, and so I think I do. And I mean, I'm sure I can improve at it, but I feel like I've from the day I uh, from the young days of me being a chef to now, you know, I've definitely evolved a lot in that direction. Speaking of improve, one thing I've always wanted to improve at at my house. The simple things, yeah. Chopping an onion, getting a, getting a hold it's the of foundation, some, isn't it right? Knife it right? cuts. Yeah, I mean that's knife what you, cuts. That's what you learn. Uh, that's uh, that's cooking one hundred and one. Would you take me into your kitchen right now yeah. and and teach me the right way how we at LPC do something as simple as chop up an onion? Yeah. I might have to ch- uh, make you sign a waiver. So if you cut yourself, uh, <laughs> that's on you. Fair enough. But no, for sure. I mean, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's key to, you know, and you learn those techniques from, uh, yeah, being in the kitchen and learning from, from chefs because uh, something that might seem simple, but it takes years of practice. Well, and also it takes, a, you need a sharp knife. You know, sharp knife is key. Uh, sharp knife is a safe knife, actually. But uh, yeah, let's go back there and uh, and uh, let me show you how to chop an onion. Let's do it. All right. So very important when you're um, when you're cutting anything on a cutting board, it's important to put something underneath it, such as a towel, some sort of rubber mat, so that you don't have like a cutting board that just around everywhere you know so already you want to set yourself up for success and you want to you know be able to work safe so you have two sides to an onion one is the bottom where it grows from the roots and then this is the top so I always like to, to start by cutting the top part put it on the root side and holding on to the onion and you glide blade straight down. Right in the middle? Yeah. There you go. So you actually do want to keep the root parts. Wow, okay. Because it's going to be able to... Uh... What's up, buddy? I'll be right there with you, okay? What's up, dude? How are you, man? Good to see you, brother. So what it does is that it actually holds the onion from falling apart when you're dicing it. So we're going to peel the top layer where the skin is. Okay, so we ripped off the skin, we left the roots on. We're gonna do what it's called a brunoise in French. Brunoise stands for small dice. So the way you do that is you're gonna start by slicing and you're not going all the way, three quarter of the way. And see how I'm, I'm pressing and pushing back. You know, you're looking at... Okay. So then, you rotate your onion, and you hand flat on top so you're not cutting yourself. Halfway through? Yes. And same. You're not trying to go all the way down, three-quarter of it. So now, so you went crisscross pretty much. What you're going to do is you're going to, with your hand, each finger, kind of hold your onion tight like that. And then you're going to take your knife and kind of glide straight down. There you go. Look at that. Wow. Fucking natural over here. Nice. (laughs) So there you go. I'm going to use that trick at home, my man. There you go, buddy. Thank you very much. You got it, man. Can you use these onions tonight in service? Absolutely. I would love to know that these got used in service. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure to put down the menu cut by Adam. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, I'm going to be able to charge five times more now. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, obviously, it might take you uh, a few more thousand onions to perfect it, but <laughs> but you didn't do too bad. I'll be that much better tonight yeah. when my sweetheart and I are at home. Because we, we cook every night together. That's awesome. And it is so much fun. Like, it is. I love just cooking with her. Yeah, to go back to what you are asking me earlier about, you know, uh, cooking at home, I actually love it. You know, cooking at home, it's actually very soothing. Uh, it's completely different than working in a professional restaurant. And I just kitchen. love cooking at home with her. Like yeah, it is I mean, so it's fun. fun. It yeah. should be. You know, cooking should be fun. And she's a lot better at it than I am. I mean, she's so good with flavors and stuff. But it's like, I'll chop whatever you want. Like yeah. I'm here. I'm, let's do this. You know what I mean? I'm usually so, the dishwasher at home because you know we have a cheers to that. We man. have a deal with That's my me. wife, and it's uh, <laughs> whoever cooks, the other person does the dishes. Yeah, so. there you go. But uh, no, I mean, for sure, you know, that's, that's the power about, you know, food and everything that goes with it, you know, and cooking is a big part of it. So when you enjoy, you know, eating and cooking, it's definitely super fun. So cool to see where wine has taken you. I'm so glad that it brought you here. Yeah, I love I loved getting back in the kitchen with you. As well. And I can't wait to, to come back here a little date night and, and enjoy your cuisine again. I can't wait for this fall. Anytime, and please. You're always welcome, you know, so we'd, uh, we'd love to have you guys. Did you have fun with this? Yeah, I mean, and uh, that, for me, it's a, it's a nice little break. I think it's nice to be able to, to talk about, you know, our behind the scene, you know, that a lot of people might not really realize because when you, of course, when you sit down in the restaurant, you don't necessarily... Think or, you don't get this kind of Julian. Well, no, you know. So it's nice to to kind of get a little behind the scene and uh, and like and tonight, if if someone comes to your dinner service and even if they do get forty five seconds with you, it'll feel good. It'll make their night. Then they got a talk, chance to talk but to I chef. I try to do that every but, single night. You know, you for do, me, it's, it's huge hard. Too. It's hard. It's hard, and that's why I usually kind of do it towards the end of service. But uh, but I really, you know, truly care about you know all my guests that come in this restaurant, and I'm. I love actually chatting with them and seeing how their their dinner went. Yeah, your enthusiasm is completely, it's like it's all over your face. Your smile. I've, I've always enjoyed talking to you, man. Thank you, man. And the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having Cheers, me. Buddy. La petite canaille. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So give me that moonshine. We'll get by. We pass on around till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify good company. Love that chat. Love that he let me in the kitchen, get hands-on, and I'm totally now sharpening my Cutco's at home so I can cut onions like a champion. I'm going to get some uh, pics from my time in the kitchen posted on Instagram, too. You can follow me at Adam on the air. We'll get some pics up. I've got some great pics from past episodes as well if you want to follow along. Well, we are smack dab in the middle of Harvest. In the next episode, we're going to talk all about Harvest. We'll have the owner of Opolo, Rick Quinn, on the show. Also, the owner of Grey Wolf, who was my very first interview over 10 years ago when I started talking to wine folks on the air, Joe Barton. And I'm going to make sure we also get communications director, Chris Toronto. He's with Paso Wine. And really just to talk about that special vibe in the air that is only around during this time. In Paso. So do make sure you're back here with me next time. Until then, feel free to catch up on past episodes and connect with any questions or comments. Rate, review, and subscribe, or hit me up on the socials. Love this time here with you. Many folks to thank, like Dan Curcio of Moonshiner Collective, for the original music on the podcast. You hear their song, Good Company, and you can check out his music, Moonshiner Collective, wherever you get your music. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance and is recorded and produced by yours truly. 
I'm your host, Adam Montiel. And on your next trip to the Central Coast, you can tune me in on your radio, my morning show, Up and Adam in the Morning, Coast 104.5, and of course, the wine stuff, the cork dorks and more on the Crush 92.5. Speaking of your next trip to Paso, log on to TravelPaso.com for more and any and all things wine tasting and more. You can't make a trip here without checking in PasoWine.com. I hope you are enjoying the beginning of fall, the food, the smells, the produce, the air at night, all of it. And seeing where wine takes you. Peace. And give me that sound, get bowing, pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify and work on. Give me that sound, get bowing, pass on down till the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify and work on. Give me that sound, get bowing, pass on down till the job is in the trees who will simplify in good company with that moonshine we'll get by we pass all around till the job is dry camped out in the trees who will simplify in good company